Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for the morning. Your grace and kindness are just so abundant to us. We're very, very thankful. Help this time to be helpful and profitable. Lord, edify into our hearts, to our understanding of you and your ways and your word and just what it means even to gather in corporate worship and to appreciate that, to take full advantage of it and to realize what it is that you have for us in doing this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were to take a poll across the world right now, I bet you would get a wide variety of responses to the question, why do you go wake up and go to corporate worship? You know, go to church, right? But we understand that the church is the body of people, and so we're going to the church building for the sake of worshiping corporately. And some people would say, well, it's just what we do on Sundays. It's what we've always done on Sunday, and you wake up on Sunday, and time to go to church. Some people would say, well, it's always exciting. The speaker is so good, and the band is amazing. And some people say, well, God said we're not supposed to forsake the assembling, so I guess we better assemble. Some people would say, well, it makes me feel connected to God, and it recharges my soul. But there's a variety of responses, there's a variety of motivations, there's a variety of just understandings about even what is it and why is it that we do what we do on a regular Sunday morning, or Sunday night in some cases, even Saturday night in some cases, when you gather for corporate worship. And if you think about the, this gathering, it's a fairly significant commitment of time and resources. Let's conservatively call it two hours a week, all right? That's 100 hours a year, all right? And this is where math starts to get complicated, especially for Pastor Rick. But you could say uh, 8,000 hours over the course of your life, maybe, and that's kind of on a conservative side. And I, wanna, I want to help guide our thinking into a fuller understanding of why and how we gather for corporate worship and to realize that this is something that is not a new phenomenon. It's something that actually has been occurring in God's people, not just for years, not just for decades, not just for centuries, but for millennia. All right, so we've, this Sunday school series, which has, has sort of snowballed a little bit out of control, <laughs> but is the idea of old theology for current times. And this theology of the gathering for corporate worship we need to make sure we have a right understanding of, of what it is and how God has even had it in play and as part of his plan for his people for, for uh, an old, long time. And what I want us to think about first is just the relationship between corporate worship and redemption. I want us to think about this gathering, the assembling of the, the people of God together, the fact that God redeems people for corporate worship. All right? Look, uh, look back in Exodus chapter 5. Even, even all the way back then, as God, God has been working throughout history to, uh, to grow his people, and he started out with Abraham, and then he grew his family, and, 
and then they uh, find themselves in Egypt over the, over the course of, you know, the betrayal of Joseph, etc., 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 and the people grow, and God now has a people, but they're enslaved, and they're crying out for help. And in Exodus chapter 5, verse 3, well, let's start in verse 2. Eh, we'll start in verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. God is saying, Let my people go, so that they can worship me. But Pharaoh said, Who is this Lord, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Besides, I will not let Israel go. Then the people said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise he will fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword because they want to worship as God has told them to worship. God has said you are to do this and now they are saying, God is saying through Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they can worship. If we flip over a chapter, this gets reiterated several times. In chapter 7, verse 16, this is after, um, or in the the midst of getting ready to work the the wonder of turning the water into blood, God says to Moses, you're going to say to Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And that word serve is, is a worship word. Okay, that word serve means to serve in the sense of worship, both with life but also with corporate liturgical function. Okay, so this is, this is one of the reasons that God is seeking to free, to redeem his people, to save them from Egypt, is so that they as a people of God can worship God together. We see it in chapter 8, verse 27 and 28. The Israelites are saying, we must go a three days journey. Because Pharaoh's trying to say, well, tell you what, just worship God here. And they're like, no, we can't worship God here because of this. And well, okay, so just go mm, a couple hours journey outside. And they say, no, we have to. And then they jump in here and they say, verse 27, no, we must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commands us. And this is where Pharaoh says, but I will let you go, but you may, that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away, so make supplication for me. God brings the people out so that they can worship him. And ultimately his plan is to then bring them into Canaan, into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey as he promised Abraham, even as he was wandering and sojourning through that land, Right? But even there, the goal is to bring his people together in the place that he has for them so that he can be their God and they can be his, uh, his people and that they can worship him as God has designed. And that's why God redeemed Israel. This is one of the reasons God redeems the church. Look over in First Peter chapter 2. It's a long flip, I know. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous 
light. That's, those are worship words. Those are collective people being together for the sake of worship words. If we look over in Ephesians chapter 4, Verse 1 to 13, it's in light of the salvation, the redemption that God has accomplished in his people through Christ, through the Spirit, through everything that uh, Pastor Rick has been preaching about in Ephesians 1 and more even. And then in chapter 4, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. That's the calling of salvation. He says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you are also called in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And let's skip down to verse 11 real quick. He gave some as apostles and as prophets and as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. And here, here comes some of this corporate worship idea for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. And that idea of service is the idea of worship, both functional and liturgical worship. To the building up of the body of Christ. So this is not just sit at Starbucks and worship. This is worship and service for the sake of and in the midst of the church body as gathered. And this is why God saves the church. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So this is the Old Testament saints, this is the church, and ultimately, it's all God's people together. And we get a glimpse of this. Look over in Revelation 5. And to me, this is very helpful just to realize that we are in the midst of what is both the beginning and the culmination of God's work, which is the, the corporate worship of God, of God by his people gathered together. It's not just a routine. And on the flip side, it also is not something that is simply about me and myself and I getting what I want or doing what I want or feeling what I want. It's about the people of God as redeemed by God to do what God has called his people to do. So look in Revelation 5, verse 11. I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That's in John's vision right there. And, he gets a, and then he gets a look even at the, what is to come. Look over in chapter 21. Revelation 21. The, um, the interesting idea here in Revelation 21 where he sees the new heavens and the new earth coming down and the new Jerusalem coming down which is ultimately the eternal state 
that we are anticipating. And he says in verse 22, he says, I saw no temple in this new city of Jerusalem. And the temple is all about the corporate worship of God, the people of God worshiping God and God living in the midst of his people to receive that worship. And, and John says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And then in chapter 22, verse 3, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. Again, that word serve, you could flip that and translate that just as easily as worship. Okay, the bondservants, his bondservants will worship him. The eternal state is going to be a time where God's people across history have been redeemed into a place where God lives in the midst of his people and the people gather for the sake of serving, for worshiping God. And so right now, we get the opportunity to both look back and to say, look what God did and why he did it. He redeemed his people so that they could gather and worship him. And look ahead. What are we going to? And, and this is more than just sitting on fluffy clouds and playing harps kind of worship, right? And we, Dr. Ware, when he was here, pointed our eyes in a, in a wonderful way towards this, the, the anticipation, the excitement of heaven. But we look ahead and we say, what is this about? Ah, it's about God redeeming his people, like Ephesians 1 gives us a point to, to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of God's glory as we gather in eternity, all together with the saints from the ages to worship God. And right now, we're in the midst of it. We're in the midst of practicing it. We're in the midst of prioritizing it. We're in the midst of being aware of it and understanding it. And, the, and, and, and even in the thick of all of life and all of the struggles with sin that will no longer be there, in that day, this is what we have been redeemed. One of the reasons that we have been redeemed is so that we can gather I want us to think about corporate worship and the idea of a holistic offering. I want us to see, first off, that corporate worship is linked to redemption, and second, that corporate worship is linked to the idea of a holistic offering. All right, and this is a, this is a strong theme throughout scriptures that as we consider this old doctrine of corporate worship and what it is and what it means, that we need to keep in mind this idea that Corporate worship requires and presupposes a holistic offering. Look in uh, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1. In verse 10, hear the word of the Lord. And God is speaking to the leaders of Israel. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now listen to this. He's, he's referencing their corporate worship when he says, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings, no longer incense is an abomination to me, new moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moons, festivals, and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. And so when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. 
Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Ah, in verse 18, come now. And let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. God is rebuking Israel because they were not giving him their whole lives. And so, divorced from a life that is given to God in obeying the Lord and seeking to honor the Lord over the course of life and over the course of day-to-day living and decisions and, and use of time and money and how you treat other people and all that kind of stuff. Divorced from that, the ritual, okay, the Sunday, in our, in our case, the Sunday gathering of what we do and how we come and how we enter and how we sit and how we sing and how we give and how we pray and how we look and all that kind of stuff doesn't mean anything. In fact, it's, it's, it's abhorrent to God when it's given to him on a Sunday morning, divorced from a life that is commensurate with that. And we see this in Matthew 23 as well. I mean, this is, this is one of the most strong portions of language that Jesus uses as he speaks to the scribes and Pharisees, when he says in Matthew 23, verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you you tithe mint and dill and cumin cumin, and have have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first, clean the inside of the cup. That's the heart. That's the heart as it manifests into life. Clean the dish so that the outside of it may be clean also. See, God doesn't want form. God doesn't want externals all right, and so it's important that even as we consider the, the grandness of this act of gathering together and giving our corporate worship, that in the midst of those acts, God is looking at the holistic being of each one of us and saying, I want you. I want all of you. I want you to worship me by how you treat others, by how you treat your boss, by how you treat your employee, by how you treat your children, by how you spend your money, by how you use your time. All those types of things God is looking at and saying this is part of the worship. And so right corporate worship presupposes a holistic offering of self. It's like Romans 12 verse 1 and 2, right? And we covered that, well, that's been a couple years now, uh, a while ago. I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, Right? He's not saying, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your Sunday mornings as a, as a moment of sacrifice. God wants us as a holistic offering to be his. We see this in, uh, in, in the rebuke in 1 Corinthians 11, and I won't read it, but you can look at it. But they're celebrating the Lord's Supper. They're doing the form 
And yet they're doing it in a way that actually demonstrates selfishness. Some of them are getting drunk in the midst of celebrating this this meal and some people are going hungry and so they're not serving them and they're eating before they even get there so that there's, there's nothing left over but they're celebrating the Lord's Supper, right? They're doing this form of corporate worship and yet the way that they're doing it undercuts the sincerity of the worship in that time. And so Paul rebukes them for that. And these passages drive home the point that actions in corporate worship aren't sufficient in and of themselves. All right? We gain and we merit nothing by coming and sitting and standing and singing and even giving and listening. We merit and gain nothing. In and of themselves, they aren't sufficient for anything, but God's perspective towards our participation in corporate worship is contingent upon the state of our heart, which is reflected most clearly in our day-to-day living. All right, God's perspective towards our participation in corporate worship is contingent upon the state of our heart, which is reflected most clearly by our day-to-day living. And this is not dealing with salvation, right? This is rather dealing in the, way, in the way with which God views our participation in the acts of corporate worship. So what does that mean? That your week has to be perfect before you come to worship? No, because none of us can do that, and we're aware of that. All right, but it should mean that there is, that there is a sincerity, all right, and a pattern of consistency between what we present on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night, and how we live Monday through Saturday. All right, and if there's a lack of consistency there, if there's a lack of sincerity there, then we need to know that God looks at, at our participation in the formal gathering times as, as he rebuked the, 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 the people of Israel, as saying, look, don't bring these to me. Give me your life and then bring your Sunday mornings to me as an outflow and an expression of your life. And so again, this goes, this goes way back thousands of years to God's view of his people and how they're gathering to worship him. It's supposed to be done at 10.15, so 20 minutes. Good. Number three. I want to talk a little bit about corporate worship and the details. Um, you know, in our, in our mission statement, we, uh, we say uh, we exist to magnify God as regulated by the word of God, right? That idea, okay, is, is part of the regulative principle, the regulative principle, meaning that, that as, as we say that uh, on, a, on a regular Sunday morning in connection with who we are and why we exist, that is also, by and large, why we do what we do on a Sunday morning. So in case you're wondering, why, why do we do what we do and why do we even not do what we not do, generally our goal in a Sunday morning in a, in a corporate worship time is to say, what, what elements do we see that are in the Bible as part of these corporate worship times either exemplified 
or uh, expressly commanded, and, and how do we then implement and do those ourselves in our gatherings? All right, so some of those elements of corporate worship would be things like the word. All right, and for the sake of time, um, I'm going to read some of the, the next sections, passages more, and these, I think, are easier to understand where they're coming from. I won't read these passages, but they're there for you to look at. But it's, it's the word of God is a, is a primary part of the gathered corporate worship going all the way back to Moses. God said, gather the people, I think it was every six years, that they should read the whole law. Okay? And we see that exemplified in Josiah's reign, as he, hears, as he finally finds another copy of the law and he reads it to the people, and we see it in Nehemiah, as I, as I have down there, chapter 8. The word is read, and the word is preached. And Paul's instructions to Timothy in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy there are that you have to pay careful attention to the reading and the preaching of God's word. God's truth is a primary element of corporate worship. There's also the idea of prayer. Okay, and this again goes all the way back to the Old Testament in 1 Chronicles 29. All over you'll see people um, exemplified in just as a gathered people... For example, there's a representative praying on behalf of the people and with the people and for the people, and that's part of the history of prayer. And then there's a song. All right, there's, there's singing together in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5. It talks about a singing to one another and how that's an overflow of the Spirit within each other. And what's interesting to note in those passages, and I'll let you explore this on your own a little bit, is that there's actually a, 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 a kind of a two-directional focus in that, right? We sing to God, but we also are singing to and for each other. There is a, and so, so this, this is even why at Mission Road we say, well, let's leave the lights on. You know, we don't turn the lights off and try to drop you in the dark so that it's you in your own little bubble singing because we see the Bible as saying, well, no, your songs are a ministry to one another in a very significant way. So we want you to see each other, we want you to hear each other, um, and all those types of things. And so song is a part of our gathered worship. There's the idea of body life also, which is interesting. You can look in those passages, but what you'll see in, in the Bible is that we, we should actually gather, and Philippians 2 even touches on this. It says, uh, consider one another as more important than yourself. That's also true when it comes to corporate worship. Oftentimes, we kind of come to corporate worship saying, this is, this is me time with God time, Right? What, what do I need out of this? What do I get out of this? What, um, what am I coming in wanting addressed and all that kind of stuff? But body life, the one anothering over the course of our gathered worship is a significant expression of worship. And it's, if we as a church would start to, you know, uh, like even, even what Hebrews says, consider, think hard, dwell upon, reason out, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. 
as a part of the gathering, as a part of the assembling together, we should be thinking about how do I serve one another and how do I even encourage each other to then serve and do love and good deeds to one another. And that's a significant part of the gathered worship of the church. A focus then on how I can serve and be a blessing to others first with an expectation that God will work through others on our behalf. That we don't have to seek our own as we come to worship. We can trust God to care for us through the body, through his spirit, and that we ought to come with, a, with a, a thought and a focus towards how do I live in the midst of this church body in this time of gathering for the sake of others. We have the ordinances, which specifically we understand to be baptism, okay, believer's baptism, which, by the way, if you were supposed to be in the baptism class, that's going on upstairs right now, okay, so go ahead and leave. Water baptism of believers and then the Lord's Supper, as well, and those are our response to the commands of the Lord regarding institutions that He sees, okay, and how He commands it and how He lays it out for us. He sees those as essential to the health and the growth of the church. And so we do those ordinances, not simply because, well, I mean, the church has always done them. I mean, that's, that's a part of it, but the church has always done them because the Bible says, and we seek to be regulated by the Word of God in those things. Then there's the idea of giving, which is, is, a, is a matter of, the, the, the Old Testament tithe, by and large, was a matter of taxation for a, for a, a theocratic nation, right? And so, but then on top of the tithes, which were the, which were the, the, the sustenance of the governance of Israel, because God was the king, and that's how he instituted it, on top of those tithes were even free will offerings. The idea of, I love God, and so I'm going to worship by giving of my goods to him in sacrifice. And then we see that morphed a little bit in terms of <clears throat> the New Testament, specifically in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8, how Paul encourages the people to give of their resources for the sake of meeting the needs of the saints across the world, for the sake of spreading the gospel, for the sake of meeting the needs of the saints within the church body and all those things. And so that is a matter of individual purpose and cheerfulness for the sake of acknowledging that all comes from the Lord and should be used for the care of others and spread of the gospel. Now, that's how we seek to express what we see to be those things regulated by God's word for our corporate worship. But let's talk about expression in corporate worship, all right, which is a, a, a definite point of difference across the spectrum of churches in the world. This ranges all the way from this thought, that if you aren't jumping up and down like a mosh pit throughout all of the songs, then you don't really love Jesus, all right? And you've got some people there. And then you've got some people, they may or may not be stereotyped as the frozen chosen, who sit there and think that any movement or any physical expressiveness over the course of anything at all is tantamount to blasphemy, right? And there are obviously, those are extreme examples that are wrong in their thinking, but I do want to take the remainder of our time, 12 minutes, Aaron, and consider physical expressions and their purposes, okay, that we see in the Bible. So first off, let's look at clapping, all right? Look at Psalm 47 with me. I can't believe I tried to tackle all of this in 45 minutes. 
Psalm 47. It says in verse 1, Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. And this actually ties in later as well. Shout to God with the voice of joy. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. In Psalm 98, the, uh, the mountains are, are exhorted to clap. Sadly, since I'm the music guy, this is not clapping on beats two and four with the occasional clapping on beat one and three. Uh-uh. Which you should always generally clap on two and four. But this, I mean, that's okay. That's just, that's just you joining in the rhythm of the song. So always feel free to clap along most of the times on two and four. But the idea here is that clapping is applause. All right? It's a groundswell of applause out of, out of a response to the person, the work, and the truth of God. I mean, think about it. If, if someone's giving a speech and something is exciting, a general form of response is applause. Because it says, yes, I resonate with that, I agree with that, I'm excited about that, and so... In, in Psalm 47, the idea is, oh, look, consider God and the, how he's the Lord most high who's to be feared and that he is the great king above all the earth and clap to him. We're like, oh, man, clap. I, I remember one of, the, one of the first times that, um, that, I, that I saw this in just a, a way that was really impactful to me was at uh, the Together for the Gospel conference a number of years ago. Um, and it was Bob Coffin leading the piano with a bunch of thousands and thousands of people singing in Christ alone. And it was the, the phrase there in the ground, his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then, bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And suddenly everybody's just clapping. And I'm going, what's wrong with you people? What is that? But at the same time, I was like, oh, I get that. Because that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ isn't raised, then your faith is in vain. And so all the people are saying, yeah, he was dead, and look, he's raised. And so it's the, it's the affirmation and it's the excitement and it's the victory of our, of our entire faith being proclaimed. And so there's an outswell, uh, an outpouring of applause and result. And that's what Psalm 47 is saying. All right? We have the idea of raising hands. You're going to have to look at the passages. But I put a lot there for you. It, as you look at the passages, the interesting thing about raising hands, and raising hands is, is one of those things that has, has gotten widespread across the church. And I don't think necessarily most people understand why. I think they're like, if, my, if, my, if I just feel like, like the band is building up to that big moment, then poof, that's when the hands go up. Okay? But raising of hands is most often an expression of petition and need. And it's most often connected in prayer, biblically. Singing is intricately connected to prayer. It's an expression of communication to God. But raising of hands in the Bible is a gesture done, by and large, from a lower person to a higher person. As an expression of dependence and a recognition of their ability to answer the need. Some people raise their hands because the band is doing a big build. And you know what I'm talking about. And this is, this is so hard as the musician, as the, as the music guy, because I can, I can try and like, I can try and, you know, manip manipulate those things. I never do. Don't worry. But 
it is easy to be manipulated by mm, the experience. But what I want us to see is that physical expressiveness is always attached to a concrete interaction with the person and the work of God. And if you are having a concrete interaction and revelation and, and encounter with the person and the work of God and you feel a response of applause or uh, raising of the hands in, in acknowledgement of our need of God and our dependence upon God for who he is and what he has done and what he can do, that's what the Bible's talking about. Does that make sense? Some people raise their hands because everybody else is, and so I just want to fit in. And then that's not it. It's a physical expression of what is being communicated. Listen to that. It's a physical expression. Sometimes people raise their hands at the weirdest times. And you get that in like some of these funky little like worship songs that you don't really know what they're saying. And it definitely doesn't have much to do. But because the band has like the hook right there, everybody's hands go up and you go, no, 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 no. That's not the right kind of connection. Because the right kind of connection is being a physical expression of what's being communicated with words or prayers. And again... This is most often specifically petition and need and connected to simple praise of God. And in all honesty, most often expressed in the midst of prayer. Paul tells Timothy, I want, I want men in every place to pray with pure hands uplifted. All right, it was, a, it was, a, it was an expression of, I'm talking to you as a lower to a higher coming in need and an absolute dependence upon you for who you are, what you have done, and what you can do. So that's, that's the idea of raising hands. So uh, I just want us to be, to be clear on those things. My favorite, number three, dancing. All right? This is not my wife's favorite because she gets mortified whenever I start to dance. But again, though, all the biblical examples are their physical reactions to an encounter with God and to his truth. I think, I think about, um, you have to go and look, and I wish I had more time. Rick, can I have another 40 minutes or so in this? Is that okay? Four minutes. Okay, good. So, <laughs> look, look at David in, uh, in 2 Samuel 6. He is willing to humble himself in dancing in a way that Michael, his wife, sees as despicable. But he is so willing to humble himself in dancing before the Lord because he is so moved by joy in who God is and the fact that they're bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. And he is just ecstatic. And so it manifests in dancing. All right? And we see that in kids. Right? We were mini-golfing and my daughter Sophie gets, you know, finally, <laughs> like 12 strokes into a hole, finally puts the ball in. Every time, no matter how many strokes it took her to get in the hole, she started doing this. Every time. Like, just dancing. It's a physical expression of excitement and joy. All right? Kneeling and bowing. If you look at those verses, you'll see kneeling and bowing and Again, this is in response to God and in response to his word and in response to his truth. It's never, it's never just because, but it's a, it's a physical response to an overwhelming realization of who we are before God. All right, and we're, we're not good at this because we tend to favor, um, we tend to favor 
uh, well, frankly, kind of American pride and individualism. You know, we, we don't bow the knee to anybody, right? But we should be quick to be humble before God. The majesty and the grandeur of God, the, 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 two, the two words, Hebrew is hishtachawah, the uh, Greek is praskoneo, those are the two words that are most often translated as worship. And you know what they mean? Fall on your face. And, and, and instead, of, instead of saying that in English, and they fell on their face, it says they worshiped. But the focus in those words is on the physical expression of the spiritual reality of just being humbled in amazing ways before God. All right? The idea of standing, which is why we stand during the scripture readings, we find that in Nehemiah 8, and that again is in respectful response to God's truth. And then the idea of uh, shouting or affirming. Okay, we saw that in Psalm 47.1. There's other psalms there. There's even in 1 Corinthians 14 the idea that um, it, someone uh, in the Corinthian church that if a tongue was used, a translator needed to be used so that the person who didn't know the tongue could actually give his amen of confirmation. Because if the translator wasn't used, then it was just, it was just a, a, a tongue that nobody understood um, and they couldn't give affirmation to it. And so it's in response, again, to God, his person, and his truth that maybe we say an amen. We say praise the Lord or some other sort of affirmation that is both undistracting and helpfully encouraging. All right? All of these, though, are attitudes in action. They're heart dispositions. All right? They're heart dispositions towards God and his truth which overflow in a physical response. Now, if there was some sort of wild and crazy heart disposition in the middle of a sermon where somebody feels the need to run up and down the aisles shouting something in response to point number two on Pastor Rick's sermon outline, that's moderated biblically also. <laughs> so it's not just if your heart says it, go for it. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians fourteen forty that all things should be done decently and in order. But the reason I bring these up is because it's important to be biblical in our worship. It's important to be biblical in our corporate worship. And we don't want to give emphasis to extra-biblical expressions, things like what we see in, in a lot of places around, and the idea of being, for example, slain in the spirit, or barking like dogs, or things like that. But we don't want to inhibit, on the other hand, what truly are biblical expressions. So if in the course of our corporate worship you're moved by the person and work of God to respond in one of the ways that we've just talked about, you should feel free to do so. Don't be inhibited by wondering what people around you are thinking about it. Respond according to what God would think and how to do it in a way that's decent and in order. There's not, for example, there's not much room to bow or kneel in, you know, in, uh, in our chairs here, but if we're standing for a song and you feel greatly humbled and you want to just sit down and bow your head before God, do it. If you want to raise your hands in the midst of a song proclaiming truth that stirs your heart or, or applaud those things that stir your heart because of who God is and what he's done and what he will do, do it. If you, if you want to give verbal affirmations of the truth that's being read or proclaimed from the pulpit and the reason is because you're so stirred by the greatness of God, then do it, etc., etc., etc. And I'm running out of time. 
And for those of us who are possibly inclined towards being disgruntled at any such physical expressiveness, remember that we seek to be regulated by the Word of God. All right? And so cultivate a gracious disposition towards others and then, and then even just respond in yourself towards how God is leading you in your heart and your personality accordingly. We don't want to have a selfish consumer-driven motivation for corporate worship. And that's what leads to many of the sensationalistic practices that are seen in churches today. We want to avoid that, but we want to be driven, driven by the person, the character, and the truth of God and his work and what he's done and the anticipation of what he will do And to understand corporate worship in those things, and then to express ourselves in corporate worship in those things with sincerity, with depth of feeling, and propriety of conduct. 